Well, welcome. Welcome to the King's Church this morning. My name's Jim. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm really glad that you've come to church today. And um, wherever you're at on your journey of faith, maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a believer in God, um, but you've come with a friend or family or just checking us out, or whether you have been a follower of God for many years, for decades, I just want to say you're so welcome. And our prayer is that you will know something of the goodness of God today. We've just been singing about the mercy of God. That means God's kindness in not treating us as we deserve. The Bible says that the Lord is slow to anger. He is abounding in compassion, abounding in love. We really pray this morning you will sense some of that wherever you're at on your journey um, of faith. We pray you may know the mercy and kindness of God today. And we're so, so glad that you're here for this special uh, morning for Remembrance Sunday. We'll be joining with the rest of the nation at 11 a.m. for two minutes of silence. We'll lead us into that moment. But I want us to look at the Bible today. I want to look at some things that it says. But before I do that, I want to tell you a story about a 29-year-old man called Theo Chadburn. You'll see his picture on the screen. On April the 9th, 1918, Theo Chadburn wrote a letter to his wife, Lily. He was a miner from Sheffield, but he, as many in his generation, was called to serve in World War I. Um, he was based in France as a sergeant in the 13th Battalion of the York and Lancaster Regiment, and he wrote regularly to his wife on creamed lined paper, and every letter that he wrote um, finished with a row of crosses at the bottom. And this letter that he wrote on April the 9th, 1918, was to be the last letter that he wrote. Because three days after he wrote it, he was killed in action. It was thought he was rescuing um, colleagues, comrades from a burning building. In fact, his body was never recovered. And in his final letter to his wife and his six-year-old daughter, whose name was May, he says this, I'm daily thinking of you. And constantly hoping and trusting God for the reunion. May he grant us that privilege. I believe I have still a work to do for him. And my mind is broader. I believe that every day I learn more of his goodness. And I'm waiting his pleasure to be able to do a work for him in conjunction with my dearest wife. Heartbreakingly, the letter arrived home after his death. And um, Lily thought he had been taken prisoner. It wasn't for a full year until April 1919 that she received a letter from the war office confirming there could no longer be any hope that her husband had survived the war. It's interesting, Theo and all his family in Sheffield were members of the Salvation Army. He used to play in the brass band, used to play in the worship services at the weekends. And um, interestingly, he wrote to his wife about the privilege of Salvation Army services on the front line that he was part of. He writes this once to his wife. The place was packed with soldiers. There were about 150 fellows who made the necessary decision of committing themselves to God. I tell you, he wrote, it was the best Easter Sunday night meeting I've ever spent. I was greatly blessed. I don't know why. I don't know about you, but I've never thought about worship services taking place on the front line before about Salvation Army meetings in the midst of war where scores of men are giving their life 
to Jesus. I haven't spent much time thinking about that. He says it is the best Easter Sunday meeting he'd ever been to. 150 soldiers given their life to Jesus. Theo's name is engraved on a memorial at Ypres, and his wife Lily never remarried. Today is obviously an important day, a profound day, and of course, particularly poignant day as we mark the 100-year commemoration of the end of the First World War, 100-year anniversary since Armistice Day. And I'm sure, um, like me, all of us have, over the last week or two weeks, been seeing news articles, um, news stories, TV shows, articles online about the First World War and Armistice Day. I certainly have been reading a lot about it. I was reading about the final day of the conflict, the 11th of November, 1918. Fighting was still taking place that day. Apparently, the last soldiers went over the top at 4.20 a.m. on the 11th of November, 1918. And the armistice was, agreement was signed in a railway carriage in a forest in France at 5 a.m. that morning. It was until 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month that Europe's guns fell silent. And even on that day, even on the 11th of November 1918, astonishingly, 2,700 people lost their lives on the day the war ended. And the statistics, I'm sure you've read these, seen these, heard these, they're horrendous and they're almost so big that you can't quite know what to do with the numbers. Um, 65 million people fought in World War I. 65 million people. Nine and a half million soldiers lost their lives. Two million of them as a result of disease and malnutrition, not actually because of conflict. In addition to this, I reckon another 10 million civilians also died. A whole generation of sons and brothers lost. It's, of course, right to remember these moments in history. It's right to remember those that have fallen. It was King George V who called the first Remembrance Day in 1919. He said this, All locomotion should cease. So that in perfect stillness, the thoughts of everyone may be concentrated on reverent remembrance of the glorious dead. And every year since 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month of November, a two-minute silence has been observed. Over the last couple of weeks, I've read a lot of stories like Theo Chadburn's story. Um, if you want to have a look at the Bible Society website, they have produced a fantastic resource telling the stories of many, many individuals who served in World War I, who had a faith in Jesus, who were Christians, writing about their faith and what it meant to them in the most horrific of conflicts. Do you know, the overwhelming majority of soldiers in World War I carried a Bible with them into battle. They carry a small Bible in their left breast pocket here. And it was a hope for many, many people. It's the most um, well-read book during the conflict, and there are many, many accounts of soldiers who are fatally wounded, actually dying, holding on to their Bibles in their hands. There was something about this book, the Bible, that gave people hope in the midst of the most awful of circumstances, literally gripping hold of it. Where is God in the front line of war? It's one of people's biggest questions about the existence of God. Where is God in war? Where is God in conflict? Where is God in suffering? How is it possible for a man 
like Theo Chadburn to be able to write home to his wife from the front line and so that every day in war he was learning more about the goodness of God. Doesn't feel to correlate, does it, that he knew something of the goodness of God in the midst of such brutality and suffering. World War I, you probably know this became known as the war to end all wars. This was a phrase originally came from the British author H.G. Wells. In August 1914, he started publishing a load of articles in London newspapers. There became a book, and the book was called The War That Will End War. He believed it would. He believed that the First World War would be the end of all global conflict. And it became one of the most common catchphrases of the First World War. And I was trying to imagine this week, as I was reading and looking at news stories, I was trying to imagine what it felt like in the nation the day that it was announced the war is over. Because I'm imagining there was like this incredible sense of celebration that the war was over and relief, yet coupled with like unparalleled sense of grief and loss, all at the same time mixed up together on that day when the war was declared as finished. The prime minister of our nation at the time, a guy called Lloyd George, said two weeks after the war finished that he wanted to make Britain a fit country for heroes to live in. There would be homes, jobs, and healthcare for all. He was declaring a sense of hope for the future, new beginning. But obviously, history tells us it didn't quite work out as optimistically as that. Major illness hit the nation. Great depression impacted the economy. And then within 20 years, within a generation, the world is at global conflict again. World War II begins. Of course, we can look back over the last 100 years and see clearly that this was not, in fact, the war to end all wars. In fact, there's been hardly a year um, in the 20th century where there's somewhere in the world there wasn't a war going on, a conflict. Just 20 years later, World War II began, and we know, of course, war is not over today. For all of our human intellect and technological development, for all of our advances in understanding, all of our knowledge about how the brain works and human psychology, all of our study of cultures and societies, all our progress with communication and travel, there are still wars raging right now. 5,000 British servicemen and women are overseas on deployment at the moment. Families are being impacted. So Remembrance Day is not only a day when we remember what happened, it's the day where we remember what is happening right now in our world. Nations that have been torn apart in many conflicts, such as Yemen. I'm sure many of us have seen the news about Yemen, just from the horrific civil war that's been going on for so long. Or maybe South Sudan, the world's newest nation in the grip of a horrific civil war. Or Ukraine. Kind of slipped out of the consciousness a little bit, but there is a war going on there at the moment. Syria, you can't believe the devastation in the nation. Myanmar, I mean, we could just go on. Democratic Republic of Congo, just war. The war to end all wars did not end all wars. Conflict still exists. War still exists. How does faith in Jesus Christ say anything to a world today that is still in such conflict? Does a Christian message have anything to say that makes sense or is relevant when we think about the subject of war? 
I ask the question today because it's the question that many, many people ask. And maybe this is the question that you have today. Maybe this is the question that you have about the existence of God. If God, why Yemen? If God, why suffering? If God, why doesn't he step in if he's powerful? Why doesn't he step in and stop the conflict? If he's good, like we've been singing about, why doesn't he do something? It's the question, it's the biggest question that people have about the existence of God. How is it possible to know the goodness of God, like Theo Chadburn said, in a world where there's so much conflict? Can the Bible, can this book, this book that offered so much hope to a generation 100 years ago, offer us any hope today in 2018? These are real questions. Let's look at what the Bible says. Let's look at what Jesus said. What did the Bible say? Well, firstly, Jesus says a lot, actually. When he was here, he talked about war and he talked about conflict. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are books in the Bible that tell us about his life. And they all record him saying that there will be wars and there will be rumors of war. And nation will rise against nation and kingdom will rise against kingdom. These things will happen, Jesus said. Um, He says you should not be surprised or alarmed by these things. They will happen. That's what he says in the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus was very honest. He says, yet the world will fragment. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. That will happen. So the world in which we live today is actually completely consistent with the world that Jesus said it would be like. So that's what the world will be like. Nations will rise against nations. He was talking in the context, talking about how will it all end? What will God do? He said, well, actually, you need to recognize that the world is going to be dark. There will be war. There will be nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Of course, Jesus himself was born into a world of conflict. He was born as a Jewish boy into a Jewish family living in a nation that was under the occupation of an enemy force. The brutal Roman Empire had conquered their land. They were living um, under occupation of the Roman Empire. And of course, Jesus himself, when he was born... He was a threat to an egocentric dictator who thought this young man Jesus, they're talking about him being the king of the Jews, well, that's a threat to my throne. So an evil, egocentric dictator tried to wipe out a generation of young boys in a certain region to stop that threat. And so Jesus had to flee with his family as a refugee. He had to flee violence as a refugee, like hundreds of thousands of people are doing in our world today. So Jesus fully understands what it is to live in a world that's at conflict. He fully understands what it is to actually have to flee from violence as a refugee. That's what his family had to do in the first years of his life. He's not removed, actually, from the brokenness of our world. He understands it all too well. Now, of course, conflict in our world today is not just limited to a global issue or a national issue. I guess we are all too aware that conflict is a deeply personal issue as well. Relationships break down and become hostile. It happens in everyday relationships. One neighbor takes another neighbor to court over the height of their hedge. Conflict in everyday relationships. Tragically, it happens in family. One sibling falls out with another sibling and they go years without talking to one another. Conflict. Or maybe is the conflict of gang revenge in London. Unprecedented numbers 
of teenage young men are being murdered on the streets of London right now. Conflict. Or maybe it's a president who falls out with a member of the press corps. And we're all shown it, to read about it, see it, tweet about it. Conflict. There's something in the human heart that there's often conflict in relationships and brokenness in relationships. Actually, maybe the fundamental human problem in the world today is broken relationships. Hostility between people. Conflict in families or in friendships. And maybe this is your experience too. Maybe you are here in the midst of personal conflict. A relationship that is just hostile. It's not right. See, conflict is not just a national issue or a global issue. Conflict is a deeply personal issue. People fall out. People get angry. People want to get revenge. And the Bible nails it. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible absolutely nails it. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 12, it says this. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Conflict is a result of hatred that brings hostility between people and between nations. That's what causes conflict. There's a lack of love for one another. And Jesus understood this, and he understood that actually all conflict comes actually from that which is within us. In Luke 6, verse 45, he says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What Jesus says is the stuff that's wrong in the world is actually in here. It's a heart issue. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've experienced hostility from someone. Someone's done something hostile towards you or said something hostile towards you. And you sense that's come from right in here. It's like they, what they've said is like an overflow of what their heart is. Or maybe you found yourself in situations where if you reacted and you thought, How, why have I reacted like that? It's like, man, that's come from in here. That, that's just kind of come out of somewhere. You've said something and then regretted it and thought, where did that come from? Well, Jesus says all this stuff is a heart issue. The, the root cause of conflict and hostility actually comes from within. So what we do and what we say and how we act really comes from within us. So the Bible isn't surprised that the world is at conflict. Jesus said it would be. Whether that be nation rising against nation or person rising against nation, the Bible speaks into it. The Bible's not irrelevant. It's very, very relevant in our day. The war to end all wars did not end all wars, as we know, or all conflicts or national or personal conflicts. So as we look around, is there anything that can help us then? If this is just how humans act, if there's just personal conflict and national conflict, is there an answer for genuine peace and genuine hope and genuine reconciliation in our world? Does the Bible say anything about that? In the book of Colossians, you may want to turn there, chapter 1. A guy called Paul, the Apostle Paul is how he's known. Is writing to a church in a place called Colossae. In chapter 1, he's writing this just amazing description about Jesus, the supremacy of the Son of God. You may see that heading in your Bible. It says this in verse 19, that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. The fullness of God was seen in Jesus 2,000 years ago. 
And through him, through Jesus, God wanted to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. See, the very heart of the Christian message, the very thing at its core, if you could kind of whittle it down to its very essence, is actually it's a message about reconciliation and peace. About a God who did not want to live at conflict with the world and so stepped into the world through Jesus to reconcile us to himself. That peace between man and God may be possible. The whole message of Christianity is one of reconciliation and hope. And in a world of conflict and fragmentation, it speaks massively about where true reconciliation can come from. First of all, humanity needs to be reconciled with God because he is the source of life and truth and hope. And then through him, through Jesus alone, we can be reconciled to one another. It's the heart of the Christian message. So Jesus came when he was here 2,000 years ago. He was declaring and proclaiming radical things like this. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or this, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. I mean, we read these things, we think, well, these are radical words now. They were as radical 2,000 years ago. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Jesus' life, his message embodied these ideas of forgiveness and peace and reconciliation. Don't seek to get revenge. Pray for people, not conflict, but forgiveness and reconciliation. And he lived out this Christian message. And if you're here wondering, I wonder what Christianity is all about. My encouragement is to just look at the life of Jesus. He lives out what the Christian message is all about. Jesus is the way by which we can enter into a relationship with God. There's only one way to know God, to be reconciled to him through Jesus. The greatest conflict in human history is between God and humanity. We were created to know God in his image, to be his representatives, to enjoy him. That was separated. That relationship's been broken. It's been fractured through something called sin. And God has gone to extraordinary lengths to reconcile us to himself. And this is a message of reconciliation when things have been broken. So God acted. Jesus came. Jesus, who is fully God yet fully human, lived a life to show us what humanity is really all about and came that we may be separated. The relationship that was broken may be unified in him, humanity and God. How can we get right with God? Well, we can't do it on our own. God acted. God reconciled us. God stepped in to bring reconciliation. If you're here thinking, well, I need to get right with God, I better work a bit harder. Maybe you're here at church today thinking, well, if I go to church more often, maybe I'll get right with God. No, none of our efforts work, okay? We need to trust that God acted through his son Jesus to reconcile him to himself. So if we trust in Jesus, we are reconciled to God and that relationship is healed. It's all about the finished work of Jesus on the cross that we've been celebrating. At the heart, the Christian message is a message of reconciliation. So to anyone that says, well, what does the Christian faith say in a world of conflict and suffering? Well, the answer is this. It says, actually, 
That is inevitable as long as we stay alienated and separated from God and ignore the person and the teaching of Jesus. That will happen. Um, let me tell you about this guy. This is a guy called Michael Ramsden. Some of you may have heard of him. Anyone heard of Michael Ramsden? Show me hands. Number of you. Um, Michael Ramsden is international director of a group called the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And he's a thinker and a speaker and a Christian leader who spends most of his time with um, global leaders, so either global business leaders or global political leaders. So literally, he spends time with governments. Governments will invite him in and say, will you come and help us? We've got these questions about culture or faith, and we need your input. So our own cabinet, our own government, have closed sessions where they invite Michael Ramsden in, saying, can you please help us? We've got some questions about culture and life and faith. Can you come and speak into us? So he has these incredible opportunities, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, east and west. I mean, he's got incredible stories, this guy, of like sitting down with leaders of like the Taliban and introducing them to the message of Jesus. And he spends time with governments, business leaders, political leaders. And um, he speaks about faith and he speaks about culture, travels the world. He seems to be in a different country every day. He says, as he travels around and sits with governments and business leaders and academic leaders and talks about what's going on in the world, one thing comes up time and time again. He's saying it's a new thing that I've discovered in the last couple of years. So I've chatted to business leaders, global leaders, political leaders. One thing keeps coming up, and it's this. Global fragmentation and disintegration. That the world, it feels, is pulling itself apart. And none of them know what to do about it, he says. I heard him speak in Westminster earlier in the year. None of them know what to do with this problem about global fragmentation, whether it's politically, whether it's business world. And he says this, what does it tell you that we live in a world in which every political leader that I've had the privilege of meeting in the Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, East and West are all asking the same question. They're all saying this world seems to be fragmenting and no one knows how it can be reconciled. He says he was speaking to a leader of a financial group who heads up a banking group that has about $20 trillion under management. Significant part of the global economy. And he's saying, this guy said exactly the same thing. The world seems to be fragmenting and no one knows what to do about it. No one knows what the answer is. He says it's the same across the board. Doesn't matter what culture, what nation, what hemisphere, what sector, everyone's saying the same thing. What are we going to do with this problem? How is global reconciliation going to be possible? And no one knows. No one can speak into it. And he says this, Michael Ramsden, if we as Christians can't learn to preach a gospel to a world that thinks reconciliation and forgiveness is impossible, then we have a problem. That is the message of the Christian faith. Reconciliation and forgiveness is possible, but only in and through the person of Jesus Christ. It's not going to come from political solutions. It's not going to come from business solutions. It's not going to come from philosophical solutions. It will come through Jesus, through his death and resurrection on the cross. We have a message, church, in this day. We have a message which is about reconciliation and forgiveness. So again, Paul says this in the book of 2 Corinthians Paul is writing to a church and he says this, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has gone, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, listen to this word, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry 
of reconciliation. That God was reconciled in the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, if you are a Christian, God has entrusted to you a message. And it's a message of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And be reconciled to one another because of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. When he's been entrusted to us, God's reconciled himself to us, not keeping a record of wrongs, not bearing a grudge, not seeking revenge, not allowing hatred to build up. And then he says, take this message with you. Go into the world. Love your enemies. Don't bear a grudge. Don't seek revenge. Don't live with hatred in your heart. Love one another. Bring the message of Jesus to a world that is fragmenting. It's a message of hope. It's a message of hope in the midst of conflict. There is a message, the one that Theo Chadburn in World War I held on to, that we are ministers of reconciliation. You know, right now in Whitehall in London, um, hundreds, probably thousands, will be gathering around this monument. It's the Cenotaph. And this was designed and built originally in 1919 to commemorate Peace Day celebrations. Um, an architect was commissioned at the request of the government to build it. And initially it was built in timber and plasterboard. It was only meant to be a temporary thing. And the word cenotaph, some of you will know this, I guess, maybe others won't, literally means empty tomb. And it's been built, designed, and named as an empty tomb. And it was designed to help a nation grieve those that never came home, those that were lost and bodies never found or buried overseas. So it was designed as an empty tomb in the heart of London for people to come to, to remember and to grieve, and they had peace day celebrations, and then the government was stunned for many days and weeks afterwards, tens of thousands of people just made the pilgrimage to the cenotaph, to the empty tomb in the middle of London, to somehow express their sense of loss and grief. They reckon a million people came in the days after peace days in 1919 to this empty tomb. Such was the impact the government decided to get it rebuilt as a permanent structure, as you see today. And right there now, as we meet here, thousands will be stood there, as they have every November the 11th um, since World War I, in rightful remembrance. It's, it's quite a thing, isn't it, to consider that this celebration, which will make all our headline news, is gathering around an empty tomb looking back into loss, looking back into what has gone and what has been taken. And as we are here this morning as a Christian company remembering, we don't just look back. In communion this morning, we don't just look back when we take communion. We also look forward. In some ways, we gather to an empty tomb today. But it's an empty tomb that isn't actually looking back in loss and remembrance. It's an empty tomb that helps us to look forward into hope because if Jesus rose again, which he did, Jesus is alive today, which he, he is. If God made all things new in Christ, then it shows us and demonstrates to us that God is going to make all things new in all of creation. And he starts with our lives in making us new. And he's going to do it. And this is the message of the Bible. And this is why the Bible is so full of hope. He's going to do it in all the nations of the earth. Hope. Because God's going to make it all new. There is a hope in this book. 
not of just what is happening now, but what God is going to be committed utterly to do in the future. I wonder if we can just turn our eyes and have a look at this brief DVD. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Amazing words from the Bible, from the book of Revelation. One day there will be no more death. One day there will be no more pain, sadness or mourning or sickness or brokenness because God will make all things new. It's his utter commitment to a broken world. And he started through his son Jesus and in his resurrection bringing newness of life. And since Jesus, 2,000 years, millions of people have encountered the reality of what it means to be reconciled to God through Jesus and a newness of life that starts within us. And then what happens is this. God calls us as his ambassadors 
If you're a Christian here, you are ambassador to be a minister of reconciliation and peace and hope in a world that is broken and full of hostility. What does the Bible say into a world of conflict? It says God has not finished yet. God is utterly committed to his purposes through Jesus Christ. God will make all things new. And God has gone to extraordinary lengths to reconcile you to him. So that that key relationship of you and God can be put right. Are you right with God this morning? Can you say that with confidence? Those verses from Corinthians, it says, we implore you, be reconcile to God. I want to encourage you this morning, implore you, do everything I can to say, please consider, are you right with God? That relationship between you and God is the key relationship. He is the source of truth and life and hope. Are you right with God? Be reconciled to God through Jesus. Trust Jesus. Put your hope and your life in his hands. Be reconciled to God. So yes, we live in a world of brokenness and conflict, but we live with our eyes upon that day when he is going to make it all new. That is our hope. That's the hope that this book contains. It's the hope that soldiers in World War I held on to. So held on to this book in the trenches, and we live with this message of reconciliation and forgiveness and peace. I wonder if we can just have a moment just to pray together.